1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with John Kukla about his new book about the revolutionary orator and leader, Patrick Henry, entitled Patrick Henry, Champion of Liberty. John, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Oh we're glad to have you here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Sure.
0: I grew up in in Wisconsin a long time ago um, and got interested, uh, as it happens, got interested in... um, both history and and particularly virginia history um, at uh, as an undergraduate in wisconsin did my phd at the university of toronto and after uh, finishing the residency there um, came to virginia uh looking for work at a time when um, uh it, this was in the early 70s when uh you know the the uh, universities were not hiring lots of folks in the humanities, um, and I stumbled into um, a uh, research position that led me essentially to a career in um, libraries, archives, and museums um, that uh, that that you know has put bread on the table and given me a great deal of satisfaction over the over the past several decades um, but all the while I continued to uh, Continued to do scholarship, um, publishing in you know the major journals and that sort of thing, um, and uh, and and frankly exploiting my um, proximity to uh, to primary sources because I'm I'm just uh, love to get immersed in the in the primary sources and um, um, you know hold the hold the documents in my hand that uh, were in the hands of the people that um, that I'm trying to to understand and, and to write about. Uh, so I've been in Virginia since uh, 1973, with the exception of the uh, 90s. I spent the 90s in, uh, in the French Quarter in New Orleans, running the Historic New Orleans Collection.
1: That familiarity with the archives comes through in your book, because I notice you talk about the record, or sometimes lack thereof, that we have about Patrick Henry. Yeah. And It seems that it makes the idea of doing a Patrick Henry biography a, a bit more challenging than with, say, George Washington or some of the other uh, founding fathers. What led you to write this particular book?
0: I uh, I had been working did let's say well, it's roughly ten years ago. I had begun work on what on a on a very different book. I had uh, begun work on a project in which I wanted to try to uh get a better understanding of the, the the coming and the uh process of the American Revolution uh particularly in 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 Virginia um and um you know without getting involved in uh you know inter- interstate rivalries and that sort of thing um you know Virginia's story has not been told and it's an important component of the national you know story of the of, of the revolution so I was basically working on that, and um, and in the in the initial conversations between uh, my agent and editor, um, we put forward a, a book that basically um, would have Henry would have figured in it, but it was but it was a, a, a broader history. And what what happened basically at that time, this was ten years ago, is that I had determined that that uh, there was there was just really no point in writing uh, yet another biography of Patrick Henry, because I didn't think there was much new to say, um, about five years into the project. Um, I, uh, uh, my editor basically prompted me to, to think, to rethink that, uh, that premise. And, and what happened is he, he said, you know, I think this would work. I think this would work well as a, as a cradle of the grave biography. And, um, and and I decided that in fact uh, that in fact he has was right. Two things in effect had changed. Um, one is that by looking at the overall story uh, and all of the participants and and Henry's colleagues and this and that and so on, um, I had insights into Henry that would not have been the kinds of things that a biographer stumbles upon, because they're the kinds of insects, insights that you see when you're looking at uh, somebody in their interactions with other people in the group, um, if, if that makes sense. And then secondly, is it in fact, I'd come across new stuff. Um, and so uh, I had, uh, you know, five years ago when we shifted gears toward a, toward a full biography, um, I knew I had a lot of uh, just a, a lot of fresh things, uh, fresh things to say. And I think the, you know the book. The book reflects. it. I should also mention um, um, in the in in recent years uh, there's a there's been a really wonderful work uh, by a guy named Kevin Hayes who is in literature, kind of does literature and history. Um, and uh, Kevin had done a study. In fact, I I kind of prodded him into trying it. Uh, he'd done a study of Patrick Henry's uh, the documentation we have for Patrick Henry's library. And, um, basically heaven was able to identify the books in, in, uh, Henry's library from the, um, inventories that we had that, uh, were with his will and, uh, and was able to document, uh, a great deal, um, more reading and, and, um, reflection and that sort of thing that than uh, than people had supposed in the past. So I like to think that between Kevin's work and mine, um, we're kind of turning, uh, turning a new reef in, in, uh, in the uh, appreciation of, um, of a, a broader sense of who Henry was and
1: what he was up to. You spend a lot of your book reflecting on that intellectual development. It's interesting because you both fit it into the course of events, but you also describe his ideas and the, the, the genesis of his thinking on a lot of subjects over the course of his life. And you begin, mm-hmm. of course, uh with, with his, his childhood, childhood. And, and it's in, and, and it's interesting how you uh both talk about him in the context of uh colonial Virginia society, but you also describe how to the best that we can how he came to uh develop some of his early ideas for which he subsequently became so famous for advocating,
0: yeah, 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 I think there's um uh i suppose there there'd be three major influences if you will on henry uh one uh and and the earliest uh is 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 his father who was uh, uh basically a, a graduate of uh the Scottish University of Aberdeen and had come over to uh to virginia sometime in the 1720s um so he was uh, a college educated man at a time when uh that was kind of a rarity in society. Um, and, and clearly, um, his father was, uh, was Henry's, uh, principal, uh, tutor growing up. Um, the, uh, the, the second um, source of, of, uh, um, what intellectual influence on Henry would have been from, uh, sort of from the contemporary, uh, um, what contemporary uh, virginia uh, political ideals and such um, which uh, uh you know a, a number of people have written about in in our time and it, in 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 his day would have been accessible to him not only in his conversations with people but also in a in a whole bunch of um, uh, tracts and essays and pamphlets that were being written in the 1750s over uh, various uh, uh political Issues and there's a sense in which Henry takes these arguments, particularly over the Parsons Clause, which is a fairly complex um, legal case that involves the uh, uh, the, the, the important, the, the overriding important constitutional issue of it has to do with um, the the uh, authority of um, the colonial legislature vis-a-vis um, Parliament and the King. Um, Henry took a lot of the arguments that were um, uh being put forward by um, older uh, Virginia statesmen um, Richard Bland particularly and Landon Carter um, and basically mastered those and um, and and put them to use in his uh in his oratory and in his thinking um, and the other the other uh influence that we have uh that is really significant on Henry is um, um, Samuel Davies, who was a uh, Presbyterian evangelist um, in Hanover County when Henry was growing up, and his uh, Henry's mother was uh, 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 attended his his uh, services rather than the Anglican services, and uh, brought Henry with him. And among other things, in addition to some of the ideas that you know we can track back to to Davies, um, clearly Davies is the uh, the main influence in terms of Henry's uh, oratorical style and his uh, his prowess as an orator. So you've got those those sort of three uh, you know university training vis-a-vis his father, and then uh, uh, the kind of civic uh, civic culture of 18th century Virginia, and then that uh, overlay of the um, uh, be- well, basically uh, the remnants of the Great Awakening that um, uh, represented in Samuel Davies.
1: And yet, you don't. Uh, you also point out when you're talking about Davies in particular about how, during the ride back from his services, his mother would essentially encourage him to critically dissect and, and, and examine uh, the his uh, the yes. from a variety of perspectives. So you also have this family influence as well, which you you know, yes. you know, yes. you know yes. shapes him in other ways as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And, and in fact you know mentioning that i think is it, it, it allows me to speak to one other aspect of uh, of of doing uh, you know writing about henry and and that is of course that he's you know he's remembered uh, particularly as a, as an orator and um, um and and that's problematic in terms of uh, a historian's sources since there were no recordings uh and and very 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 few actual transcripts of of what it is that he said you were just mentioning this situation as we have it told to us from uh, Henry's compatriots uh, of him riding back with his mother and being asked, basically, uh, you know, she would be, challenge him to, uh, to recapitulate and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and reframe and explain um, the, the sermons that, uh, that he just listened to. Um, I, I really, really strongly believe that, um, 18th century um, Americans in general probably had a greater capacity for um, listening and remembering what was said uh, than uh, than 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 we do today. Um, not because we may not we may, may we may still have the native intelligence to be able to do it, but we've got such crutches uh, in, in in our day. We've got uh, you know recordings and and uh you know videotape and and you know god knows what um, where so so we're not forced to use we're not forced to listen as carefully and to kind of retain in memory um, all the things that i think an 18th century um, uh, uh young, young man or uh, uh literate person would 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 retain um, in um, in in active memory and it's it's partially that. Think think for a minute though, um, as, as evidence from my my perspective here. Think for a minute when you're uh, driving the car and you suddenly hear an oldie but goodie comes on the fir- first few bars of the song, and all of a sudden, you know, your mind is 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 taken back to where you first heard it, who you were with, and and all the lyrics are there somewhere in our gray matter. We've got, you know. Tons and tons and tons of uh, pop song lyrics. Um, I think that the uh, 18th century our uh, compatriots would have uh, would would have had a you know used that capacity to uh, uh, to 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 remember things and think about them and and certainly uh, you know uh, actors have that capacity. I mean, you can do a whole Shakespeare play and from from memory and so on. And it's it's that capacity for memory that I think informs the um, perspective of some of the people who did try to write down um, what it is that Henry Henry said, if
1: that makes any sense. It, it does, it, and so does, as well, how they also captured their reaction. And I was thinking of, and I, I can't remember mm-hmm. his name, the one person who heard his famous uh, Give Me Liberty speech and how his reaction is famous about how he wanted to be buried at the spot where you he heard yes. it. And how oftentimes yes, and- that's what we capture. I, uh, another example I think of is in uh, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, when he describes uh, the reaction he had to listening to George Whitfield. We may not know what Whitfield said yes, on that particular day, but we know that it was so powerful that it swayed even a skeptic like Benjamin Franklin.
0: Yes, exactly. And, and Whitfield is a contemporary of uh, Samuel Davies. As a matter of fact, um, when Whitfield was doing his tour of the colonies, he came through Virginia and um, actually preached in um in in Hanover uh in the church that uh was uh, was run by uh, uh by Patrick Henry's namesake uncle Patrick Henry senior so uh yeah those are those are all you know those are those are all parts of the of the um, what lit, literate oral culture that um, um that was typical of uh of anglo-american in in, in the 18th century
1: now From what we've been covering so far, it might seem as though Patrick Henry was being nurtured as a statesman, and yet you, as you explain, his path towards becoming a uh, a statesman, a politician, politician was a little circuitous. You 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 situate him early in in uh, this rural Virginia gentry, but as but you you go on to describe how he doesn't initially set out to become a lawyer. He sets out and undertakes these, these other careers. Now, I was wondering if you could explain uh, what it was, you know, both how he, well he did in those early careers and what led him to embrace this, this training as an attorney.
0: Yeah. Um, he was coming, I mean, he, he's, he's born in 1736. So uh, in the 1750s, he's in his teenage years and trying to you know, find his way in the world. Um, his father attempts to set uh, Henry and his elder brother, William, to set them up, um, basically as, uh, a, with, with, with the store as, as merchants. Um, the, uh, the, 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 difficulties that they face, um, are, are, uh, are, are two. Um, one is that, uh, the 1750s are a period of, uh, 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 agriculturally just a, a disaster for Virginia. Um, uh on a couple of occasions they have to pass the uh the 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 two penny acts that are in response to the crop failures in virginia i should i should uh just just by aside uh, by way of explanation um in virginia in the 18th century um in almost all parts of the state uh tobacco was the major staple crop and tobacco was used as a um uh, as as the means of collecting uh, taxes, Ta- taxes and tithes for the church and uh, all that sort of thing were all levied in uh, in, in amounts of tobacco. Uh, so, for example, the you know a clergyman's salary was uh, was essentially sixteen hundred pounds of of, of tobacco. Um, uh, it's not like they were shelling out uh, a, a, a wad full of paper every time. I mean, a, a wad full of of the weed every time they did a, a transaction most of this was was done by uh, uh essentially in book debts and accounting uh but uh but basically tobacco was the was the mainstay of the of the 18th century virginia economy and what happened in the in the 1750s was that the t- um, crops just failed so it was a difficult time for henry to get started as a planter um, and then it was also a very difficult time for him to get, uh, for him and his brother to get started as, as as merchants. The other thing that was going on in terms of his merchant career is that um, Virginia in the 1740s um, and 50s was was being overrun basically by um, Scottish. Uh, they called them factors, basically small storekeepers who were working uh who would establish stores uh throughout the colony in at crossroads and the like um, and and were basically supported by and worked for um, big mercantile houses out of uh, Edinburgh and, and particularly out of Glasgow those enterprises w- had deep pockets and plenty of credit and credit was essential in 18th century virginia because um basically you had to run your debts on uh, uh on account until the harvest came in in the fall and then settle things up so what happens essentially is that henry and his brother uh in a time of uh of agricultural uh sort of disaster uh or crisis um also fail as shopkeepers because they can't possibly uh, they can't possibly offer their clients the uh the, the extension of credit that um, uh, and, and stay solvent that can be done by their competitors who are basically um, you know hired employees of these uh, uh, Glasgow merchant houses. So he learns he learns firsthand the the difficulties of uh, of, of farming and uh, and of uh, and of commerce. Um, and then at some point living, uh, as he did at this point in his life, um, right near the courthouse in Hanover, um, he decides to, uh, to study, uh, study law and, uh, and go into, uh, into the practice of law. Um, the, the accounts, uh, the accounts vary as to how long he studied and, and, uh, and such, but clearly he, he, he read enough law to, uh, to go to Williamsburg and, um, um, be examined by the uh, requisite authorities and get his license to practice law, and then that's that's where he really started to make uh, uh, to make some money as a as a frontier lawyer in the county courts.
1: You you have this great anecdote in there where you describe his examination by Peyton Randolph, who at the time was the Attorney General of Virginia, and about how Randolph initially encounters him, and he is on the one hand a member of the middle gentry in virginia but because he's not in williamsburg or one of the port towns he has a bit of a rough appearance initially peyton randolph dismisses him and it's only after he begins examination that he begins to realize he was a little mistaken and that this is a very impressive person in front of him
0: yeah and uh and and eventually in in that uh in 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 that examination he was examined probably by three of the four people who uh uh who were empowered to do that and in and in that particular one henry apparently uh recounted that story uh to others uh uh of of his friends in in, in later years but basically um um he got uh the attorney general Randolph finally basically said uh you know you 've got some native genius um, you've argued well um, there's an awful lot of reading that you need to do but uh, but you know he signed the signed the form and let him into the bar
1: now, as you describe Virginia at that time, especially in the towns, was chock full of lawyers, and yet you describe that that uh, Henry has a fairly rapid rise to uh, to uh, a, pretty a pretty high, high status, status among the legal community, of Virginia. Yeah. I was wondering yeah. if you could explain, explain how, it how it was that he does that, and the, the early, early case, case that, that really, really makes, makes his reputation—not just legally, but politically.
0: Yeah, um, in terms of his if his law career, uh, one of the, he, he basically practices in the in the county courts from um, 1761, uh, I guess it is, um, until uh, into the 1770s. And at that point he becomes um he be- it's about seventy two or seventy three i think it is that he becomes one of the lawyers who practices in front of the general court, which is basically the uh the supreme court of the colony um and uh the the way the the way things work in in the uh before the revolution at least is that a that an attorney uh, could practice either in the county courts or a very small number of attorneys practiced in the, uh, essentially appellate, uh, things in the, uh, in the, at the general court or the Supreme court. And so Henry was one of about uh, six or eight people who practiced, uh, in before the general court, right, uh, on the eve of the revolution. Um, and that's, you know, that's a high, uh, uh that, that was a high honor. Um, Henry was of course, um, Famous for his uh, 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 skills in, in in the courtroom, um, uh, in the it, I suppose analogous uh, 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 Je- Jefferson, who was not a strong uh, speaker, uh, had a had a very faint voice, uh, among other things. Uh, Jefferson was notorious or or, or uh, acclaimed for his uh, you know his his ability with a pen and his uh, ability to write briefs and that sort of thing. Um, and henry you know henry had the uh had the oratorical skills um and uh and immense effectiveness with with a jury or with um or later with the legislature uh the case that you're that you're alluding to is um is argued in uh, 1763 and um and it's called the parsons clause um it's it's it comes about in a in a complicated fashion, but essentially because of all of those crop failures uh, the the legislature of the colony had had implemented a a temporary rule that um, allowed debts and particularly public debts that were normally payable in amounts of tobacco to be paid in in uh, in cash and the reason was that the was the the failures of the crops had so uh inflated the the price of uh tobacco that the argument was made that this would be unfair it was essentially a landfall for the for the um office holders who would suddenly be um um you know getting getting being paid in tobacco that was that was sometimes uh three three to six times its normal value and that this was harmful to the to the uh to the taxpayers so the uh among the office holders that were affected by this were the uh, anglican clergy the clergy of the established church in the colony and so basically they brought suit a number of them brought suit and uh um, uh were in the in the case of the um, uh the parson's cause in Hanover the henry argued uh basically in november of 1763 uh, the, uh, the the vestry or church council had lost uh, to the uh, to the Reverend James Murray, who was uh, suing them for back pay. Um, on the, on the the ruling of the law, they uh, they determined that, um, that that the vestry was needed to needed to pay up the value of the tobacco. So it was at this point that in front of the December 1763 hearing, that Henry was brought in, and basically what he was able to do was to argue that yes. Uh yes the uh the the vestry was responsible for for making this payment but it was up to the jury to discern to discern how much the payment should be. Um on the face of it um, uh, you know strictly speaking by the by the law the payment ought to have been about 144 pounds which was a substantial amount of money um in those days. Um in 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 the end what Henry was able to do was argue um that the jury should essentially nullify the the earlier verdict and basically the uh uh he recommended that they could pay a farthing and that's what they did which farthing is what half a penny <laughs> um so it was a uh it was perceived as being very much of a of a, a victory by the um uh by the powers of the of the the, the vestry and also a vindication of the um authority of the of the colonies assembly, the colonies legislature to, uh, to enact such a law, uh, for the, uh, for the, for the good of the colony. Um, even over the, you know, even, even over the objection of, uh, of, of, um, of imperial authorities. And so Henry was, uh, in, in making these arguments, basically he's advancing, um, positions which, um, ironically this is as i say this is the end of 1763 uh within two years these arguments about the relative uh constitutional uh authorities of the colonial legislature the crown and parliament these arguments all of a sudden that were that had been all about church governance in virginia suddenly are all applicable to um the situation that the colonies find themselves in after the passage of the Stamp Act, and so that's part of the reason um, that both Henry and and arguably Virginia um, take such a prominent role in the uh, in the early opposition to the Stamp Act, is because essentially they've been primed for for these arguments by this earlier uh, earlier controversy.
1: And as you uh, describe in the book, by the time of the Stamp Act crisis. Henry has already made the transition has already expanded from law into politics and he's in.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically what I'm sorry, what, what, what happens after, uh, after this, uh, uh, the Parsons cause case, which wins him immense popularity is at the, uh, at the very next opportunity, there's a, a by election, um, in, uh, Louisa County, which is where he's then living. Um, and, um, uh, he's elected to the legislature and, um, as he arrives in the legislature in uh, in 1765, um, all of a sudden, uh, it, as it happens, um, that's when Virginia gets word of the passage of the Stamp Act, and so Henry um, writes resolutions um, uh, a, a condemning the Stamp Act and uh, supports them with one of his famous uh, speeches, the one in which he's supposed to have said, you know, uh, Caesar had his Brutus. Charles I had his Cromwell, George III, and then there were cries of treason in the Legislative Hall, and uh, And he's supposed to have ended the sentence. Uh, George III may profit by their example. Um, so, yeah, that's the, uh, the, the success of the Parsons' cause leads to his election into Parliament. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, not a Parliament, into the, into the House of Burgesses. And then uh, as soon as he gets to the House of Burgesses, all of a sudden the, the Stamp Act has hit the fan and uh and and he's not only involved in local but in uh in what becomes international
1: politics you describe his uh politics and his involvement in the growing uh tensions between the Virginia colony and uh, and and the other colonies on the one hand and and Britain on the other. But you also spend some time talking about some of his other uh, political views, which are of great importance to us uh, today. And and among them is is his position on slavery. And as you explained, his position on slavery is not what some people might think of it as being today. Yes.
0: Um, One one of the things that I'm, I guess proud of in 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 terms of the what uh, one of the things that I tried to accomplish in the book is uh is that I've been able to document more about Henry's attitudes towards slavery throughout the course of his life than we knew in the past. Um and what what has long been known um is uh a a a letter that became quite famous uh written in 1773, in which Henry is writing to a, uh, a Quaker that he'd been uh, in dialogue with for some time, um, writing about, about slavery. And basically, Henry, uh, Henry admits that he has slaves, not only that he admit that, that he owns slaves, but he says uh, that he owns slaves of my own purchase in other words he doesn't uh he doesn't take the position that um, some of the uh tidewater aristocrats might have been said which is you know basically there have been slaves in my family for three generations i have inherited them henry henry admits that his complicity with slavery is that he has he has uh, purchased slaves uh uh himself he also um he also in 1773 uh in that letter um Condemns slavery as being completely unjustified, either in terms of philosophy or in in religion. It's um, and and this is this this is an interesting uh, this is an interesting development. And so, starting from uh, that's what we knew about Henry and slavery. Um, what what I've basically tried to do is get at the attitudes that he grew up with, which um, we don't we don't have. Anything, you know, we don't have boyhood jottings on this subject. But we do know what Samuel Davies and what his uncle, the, uh, pres- the, uh, Anglican minister, were preaching about slavery when Henry was growing up. And that position was basically that, um, slavery at, in the, in, in their view in the 1740s and, and early 50s, uh, was, was perfectly justified according to them. I mean, it's in the Bible, right? And um, and so basically, the argument that uh, that uh, that Henry was grew up with was that slavery is in the Bible; it's uh, you know ordained by God, and um, and it's the responsibility of a slaveholder to um, you know to teach his slaves to read so that they can read, read the Bible, um, bring them to Christianity, and treat them decently. Um, what happens? In the course of the uh, arguments that lead to the uh, or the controversies and, and development of thought that leads to the revolution, is that Henry comes to the position, as he expresses it in 1773, that slavery is is morally and religiously it's wrong. It's just it's wrong. It's an evil, um, and uh, and he is uh, concerned as many of his contemporaries are Jefferson famously among them uh, for the way in which slavery is a, is a drag on society and then the way in which debases not only the people who are trapped in it, but also the slaveholders and so on. And, um, and, and Henry holds to that, holds to that position. Um, and I'm able then with letters that I've been able to find that, um, at other, other collections that people didn't look at, um, Basically, we're able to trace Henry's um, um, Henry's interactions with, particularly, Virginia Quakers about slavery um, into the 1790s, when he's no longer he he still believes slavery is evil and repugnant, um, but he doesn't know how to get rid of it. He Henry does not embrace as some of his uh, contemporaries did. Uh, he does not embrace the idea of colonization you know that idea of, that uh, that uh, leads to the attempts in the in the antebellum period to to uh, establish Liberia and send slaves back to Africa he doesn't he doesn't see that as being um, um, uh, efficacious um, He continues to believe that slavery is repugnant and evil uh, but he can't figure out. How, what to do with it and therefore he ultimately comes down to saying it's evil but um, all we can do is, is uh, you know teach them to read the bible bring them to uh, religion and 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 treat them well um, what i like to say and you know i mean we' we're, we're 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 often very harsh on um, on people in earlier generations for failings that we think um, we would be able to surmount. Um, what I think is significant about Henry and his generation is that, in very many respects, they are the ones who who were able to determine that and 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 declare that slavery was an evil uh, and pernicious thing in society. Uh, and so there there's a sense in which um, we judge their failures uh, by the standard that uh, that 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 they set for us. What 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 I think it's important to recognize that they were not saying because it does happen later in the in the antebellum period you do get Southerners who are arguing that slavery is a positive good and you don't hear any of that kind of uh, uh, talk from uh, from Henry it's uh, slavery is slavery is 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 evil and um, and repugnant
1: that explanation of how his views evolved over the course of his life. I think it's one of the things that you do throughout the book, not just with slavery, but with his broader political views. I think that comes through very well in the second part of your book when you talk about how he responds both to the decision to uh, to rise up against the English to to push for American independence, and how the experiences that he has during that period, uh, both as a member of various conventions as governor of virginia during the american revolution and then, and then afterward it, how, they how they shape both his response to the british and also his response to how uh, uh, americans deal with their independence which really seems to be the theme of the last uh decade and a half of his life yeah
0: yeah i mean it, 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 one one of the there's a chapter that opens with um uh, independence has been declared the constitution uh uh of, of virginia has been adopted in 1776 henry's been elected uh governor of virginia and then he takes ill and he and he retreats to his to his home at uh scotchtown in uh in um in hanover county that summer in order to uh basically get his health back um and uh and 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 two things two well three three people visit him um and I, I try to use that as a way of basically pointing out that um, all of a sudden the, uh, um, the, 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 the issues that confront uh, Americans and that certainly confront Henry um, are all of a sudden changed now that, we, uh, now, now that you know, they, they obviously still have to win the war in order to achieve independence. But, it, but they've at least declared it. They've, they've written a constitution. And the, the, the three people that show up are, 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 are two Baptist ministers who, uh, among other things are arguing, uh, to try to get the Commonwealth of Virginia to allow, uh, Baptist, um, chaplains to accompany, um, the, uh, the, the, the troops. And essentially there's a kind of a, it's almost, it's a unspoken quid pro quo in which, um, they uh the, the baptists enthusiastically come to the support of the revolution uh in exchange for which uh the uh the, the virginians um uh are relax any of the uh, religious sanctions against the dissenters and so there's that kind of a, a sort of a deal that's made um in 1776 and then um throughout the uh Throughout the next decade, the whole question of church-state relations is a is a very important one in uh, in Virginia. Um, and then the other thing that happens is that uh, 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 George Rogers Clark uh, comes fr- comes in from the Ohio Valley uh, and meets with Henry, and um, Henry is able to help arrange for uh, shipments of um, of gunpowder and stuff, and uh, and begin his uh, <clears throat> excuse me and begin his um his work with Clark that takes the, uh, Clark's activities throughout the rest of the revolution to basically um, re- get hold of the Ohio Valley and hold it for the Americans uh visa against against the British coming down from Canada so um so ag- again in in this uh in these first weeks of his governorship um Henry is is in addition to dealing with the new issues of church and state. He's also dealing with, uh, the relationship of, uh, of, uh, of Virginia, uh, to, to the West, Western land, the lands, West of the, uh, uh, Allegheny mountains. And so these are, you know, these are, uh, kind of a foretaste of, 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 uh, issues, uh, issues to come. Um, he's also, uh, the, the, you know, the other thing that's going on, of course, during the, uh, uh, 1776 through 1779 his first three terms as governor is he's working very very closely with uh with george washington to make sure that um, washington's army which includes a lot of guys from virginia um, has ammunition and shoes and blankets and beef and inoculations against smallpox and all of that sort of stuff and it's really in those years that washington and henry forge a uh a very strong um uh, relationship that lasts uh, until both of them die in 1799,
1: and yet that relationship doesn't preclude them from having their differences. And one, Absolutely. Of th- and one of the things that where that really comes across most is in the debate over the ratification of the Constitution. And I thought that was an interesting the way you uh, present uh, Henry's opposition to a lot of it, uh, but at the same time you note how the ways in which He disagreed with Jefferson and Madison about issues dealing with, say, Virginia's own constitution when it came to things like executive authority that were predicated upon his own experiences in government, because by the time you get to the 1780s, he's been in various offices for two decades, and he really does have a good understanding of the practical needs of government. And he applies that to how, as you show, how he interprets these theoretical issues of the role of the executive the power of the legislature and so forth
0: yeah i i think um the one of the things that uh, uh, that, that struck me in uh, in you know, in looking at this group of men interacting um, one of the things that you can't help but notice uh, in the 1780s uh is is just how um, how some uh, uh, idealistic may be the la- how much of a theoretician james Madison is um you know he's he' he's, he's he's you know he's relatively young at this time and he's just caught up in in ideas and um, um and and clearly uh uh shares a number of uh enthusiasms with Jefferson that um that frankly the rest of the virginia political leadership um henry included uh, simply find perplexing um, one of them is that Jefferson and Madison both are just adamant in the belief that the Virginia Constitution of 1776 is somehow flawed, fundamentally flawed because it was never taken to a vote of the, um, uh, a a popular vote and, and ratified by popular vote. And so they keep, you know, they keep him and there's a, you know, there's a, that, 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 i think uh, amusing episode in which uh Madison basically tries to take a uh a petition from augusta county uh and turn it into a demand for um you know for some action on this constitutional uh uh um you know hobby horse that uh that that madison keeps keeps getting i mean is almost obsessed with um ultimately uh uh henry's Position prevails, and and ultimately, particularly in the works of uh, uh, say George Tucker and such, the Virginians all uh, come to an agreement. And uh, as as I think is historically the case, that the uh, Constitution of 1776, that the that the electors who sent people to the convention um, knew full well what they were doing and were demanding that they write a constitution, and they did, and that's that's what. That's what they wanted, and it's legitimate. But but Jefferson goes on and on at great length about this in uh, in in his notes on the state of Virginia, and um, um, you know it was, it was fun fun writing about this because uh, I think on on balance, in the in the in the immediate context of the 1780s, Henry is uh, shows himself to be um, somewhat more practical. Um, it it reflects to the, uh, in the, in the whole business of, you know, in, in Henry's, um, uh, in, in Henry's tenure as, as governor in 1779, there are a couple of, um, British invasions. And then of course, Jefferson as as governor in 1781, um, suffers, the state suffers, uh, uh, invasions leading up to, um, Cornwallis' come, uh, invasion and, and then the eventual, um, Defeat and surrender at Yorktown, but the, uh, the legislature of the, of Virginia, uh, while Jen- while Jefferson is governor, the legislature gets chased out of Richmond, uh, tries to meet in William, in, in Charlottesville, which is essentially, uh, uh, uh 60 miles west, uh, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge, and, um, and gets chased out of Charlottesville and has to scramble over the mountains, uh, to, uh, to Stanton, Virginia um and, and reconvene there and um um Henry's uh Henry's experience you know he basically recognizes that the uh that the that the difficulties and the powers of the governor uh are kind of inadequate to the uh to the emergency that the commonwealth faced during uh during the invasions both that he experienced and also that that uh governor Jefferson experienced um one of the one of the tragic um, results of this is that um, when the legislature reconvenes in Stanton after having been, you know, chased out of two places by the British Army, um, when they meet, uh, a, a kind of disgruntled um, uh, legislator from uh, from Albemarle County named George Nicholas um, makes a motion uh, calling for uh essentially an inquiry on the part of the legislature into the conduct of the executive now h- jefferson takes this as a personal insult uh because he's the governor uh at the time but uh but in fact and i think i've pretty well demonstrate this with uh with, with the fact that there are other members of the executive branch who feel that they too are um, you know being uh, scrutinized by this uh by, by this inquiry. And yet, um, Henry, I think, uh, we're, we're not exactly sure because the records aren't all, all that clear, but the, you know, the, the presumption is that Henry may have seconded this motion calling for an inquiry, uh, into the conduct of the executive. Um, and, and it's at this point that Henry's experience and, um, temperament and Jefferson's, uh, are, are, are just so, so in contrast. Jefferson, at this point in his life, is still pretty thin-skinned. Um, Henry, on the other hand, has by this time um, been really accustomed to the rough and tumble of legislative—not only of legislative politics—but uh, having ridden uh, the uh, the county court circuit as an attorney, he knows what it's like to uh, to argue against someone, uh, another attorney and then uh, ride off together to the next courthouse and possibly share a bed that night at some ordinary somewhere and then have to uh, argue against him in the morning. And uh, so he's, he's much more at home with the, the kind of rough and tumble of politics. Um, and basically, I, I'm persuaded, uh, uh, based on, on his own experience as governor, because nobody knew what Jefferson faced uh, uh, better than Henry, who had faced those things themselves. Uh, I think expected to see Jefferson's uh, um, responsibility, um, uh, you know, ab- ab- absolved of criticism by an inquiry. An inquiry, in fact, an inquiry would have uh, would probably have uh, uh, supported uh, strengthening the powers of the governor, which is something that Henry had advocated earlier. But what happens ultimately is, of course, is that Jefferson takes this as to be a uh, a personal insult, uh, an affront to his service to the to the uh, to the colony, and um, the friendship between Henry and Jefferson uh, collapses at that point. And I can't I can't determine. I've never been able to determine that they ever actually uh, were in one another's presence after this. And so uh, I think the, uh, the 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 animosity that Jefferson expresses toward Henry over the course of uh of his uh his much longer life and 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 Henry dies in 1799 Jefferson in 1826 so he's got a uh Jefferson has a number of years in which he's able to uh uh recall Henry and uh, uh and sort of get his get his digs in uh but that an- that animosity i think uh comes out of the uh, out of the uh, invasion period the end of the war um, the inquiry into the conduct of the executive and the fact that two men of such different temperaments basically uh, misunderstood one another and um, um, you know had had this this falling
1: out that was never healed do you think that has affected Henry's historical reputation somewhat because reading the final chapters of the book you, you had this impression of a man who's this elder statesman, who is very sophisticated in his views? He sees the, that the confederation is not working. He doesn't really like the constitution, but at the same time, he isn't in, in favor of rejecting it outright. And then, right in, in 1796, he's even being talked about as a potential president or vice president. He has a stature that he in, in the 17 by the 1780s and 1790s. That we oftentimes, I think, overlook today when we say compare him to Jefferson, who obviously is president yeah. after Henry's death, and 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 ha- and then has that nearly thirty years in which to uh, define uh, his relationship with Henry and his and his historical and, and and to have a say in Henry's historical reputation without any sort of rebuttal from Henry himself.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. and and Henry, um, I, I I mean, one of the. One of the things that uh, uh, you know that keeps Henry Henry out of the um, uh, the the pantheon of national heroes, I suppose, uh, is is the fact that uh, you know that he, aside from his service in the first and second Continental Congresses, um, uh, he he does not hold national office. He holds only uh, only Virginia office, and um, um, and so you know he's not part of the Virginia dynasty of presidents that uh, you know. That that starts with Washington and Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. uh, That whole that whole uh, you know all those prominent uh, national figures. Um, And yet, as 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 you're indicating, um, yeah, Henry was Henry was uh, um, regarded as politically significant um, in the in the 1790s. Basically, what happens is, of course, Washington announces that he's only going to you know he's not going to. of a third term, and so all of a sudden they're facing uh, an election. Um, and um, the way the the way the electoral college worked at that time um, is that basically the guy who gets the most votes is the president. The guy who gets the second most votes is the vice president. So that's what leads to the uh, uh, in the in the election of uh, uh, 1796. That's what leads to having uh Adams, who is arguably the a Federalist, uh, as these parties are developing, uh, as president and uh, and Jefferson, who is emerging as, you know, the Jeffersonian Republican um uh leader uh as, as vice president. Um and then it's only after uh you know it's only a few uh, a few years later that, uh, uh, that that an amendment to the Constitution is made to uh to establish the uh, provision for uh, for essentially political parties and 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 tickets of vice president and president, um, but it's in that context of the election of 1796, where things are um, are, are still under the old rules, that um, Henry finds himself finds his name being put forward uh, by uh, by by various people, and and essentially he announces in a letter to the public that gets printed uh throughout the colonies uh that he does not wish to be considered for uh for the presidency he doesn't essentially he doesn't want to you have his name used as a kind of a spoiler to uh uh you know to to steal votes from somebody else um and uh and and in that way distort the uh uh the electoral process
1: well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now
0: sure. Uh, I've just started a book on the um, on the Stamp Act Rebellion. Um, the uh, there, there's uh, at this point uh, in uh, here in in, uh, in 2017 um, the accepted uh, great book on the Stamp Act uh, is uh, Edmund S. Morgan's Stamp Act Crisis, and it is a, it's a fine book, and it was published in 1953, and we've been using it ever since and in the process of working on henry uh basically um i've come to the realization that there's uh uh a good deal more scholarship on the stamp act uh that uh, um that that has been written and that uh that i've got some uh some things to say not only not only affirming uh some of the perspective that uh uh, that, that uh, Edmund Morgan and his co-author and wife uh, brought to it in 1953, but also uh, s- some expanded significance of uh, the ways in which the American experience with the Stamp Act not only defined uh, political principles, which is what the Morgans uh, famously uh, established in their very important book, uh, but, it, but it also, I think, established some procedures and techniques of revolution that... Uh, uh, that the Americans learned how to do uh, in, the, in the Stamp Act uh, crisis and that then they uh, perfected and brought to bear 10 years later when they fought for, uh, for independence. So, so that's what I'm going to be, uh, that's, that's what I'm starting to work on, uh, uh, well, uh, probably after we hang up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, then I won't take a, a, another minute of your time. John Kugler, thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope you have a wonderful day.